This episode is sponsored by our friends at Dukan. Launch your online store in 30 seconds. No coding or design skills required. Whether you are a small business trying to go online, a teacher looking to set up digital presence, or you just want to sell a goat, Dukan is your one-stop solution. At the start of the pandemic, when small businesses were struggling, Dukan helped over a million merchants move from offline to online. Founder of Dukan is also a billion moonshots alumni. He shared his story of making $25,000 per month in college to now building a $100 million startup. So start your 14-day free trial now at mydukan.io. All right, Rachel. So you are a speech journalist at Payload Space. We have previously had the editor and the founder of Payload. So I've been closely following your work and you have extensively covered GWST, James Webb Space Telescope. So let's let's dive into all the cool stuff. But before we get into that, I'm actually curious. So can you give a quick intro on what Payload is and how did you get into space journalism? This sounds like a super cool job. Yeah, definitely is a super cool job. Um, so Payload Space is a media organization, a new startup um, covering the business and policy of space. Um, so we send a daily newsletter where we um, kind of get into all the nitty gritty of the business side and the policy side of space. But I um, personally have a background as a science reporter. So um, I'm kind of trying to mix my own science background into it and do more science reporting um, for Payload. But um, we reach, you know, an industry audience. We have a lot of um, founders on our list. We have a lot of, you know, CEOs of space companies and um, people, a lot of people who work in the industry and in space policy following um our news, but we're, you know, we're still getting started. We've been going with the daily newsletter for about a year now. Hmm. That's yeah. just what we're doing over there. Right. Were you always interested in space or did this job make you like dive deeper? Yeah. So it's always been, you know, a personal interest of mine, a personal love of mine. Um, you know, since I was little, I went through probably a couple phases along the line of wanting to be an astronaut. Um, when I was applying to colleges, it was always, you know, if I, if I get into MIT, I'll be an astronaut. Otherwise, I'll be a journalist. <laughs> I was really... Um, you know, maybe not the best planning strategy for me, but that's what I was thinking, um, applying to colleges and, you know, didn't get into MIT. So, you know, here's the second best thing. But um, when I right. when I um, was in school, I, I studied journalism um, and I kind of popped around trying to write about lots of different things. I did different internships. I did one of the Financial Times doing business reporting um, and data reporting and, you know, tried my hand at environmental reporting for my classes. Um, and I ended up at an internship at Popular Science. Um, where I really just fell in love with science reporting and, um, you know, talking to scientists, talking to these people who have such, um, in my experience, who have such like a deep love and fascination with the work that they do. Um, and so that's kind of where I started getting really into science writing. Um, when I graduated school, I took a job at the National Human Genome Research Institute covering, you know, doing public communications and genomics. Um, and we kind of just continued that and loved that, loved um, writing about science that way. Um, and then I sort of just stumbled across payload um, by chance. How did that happen? What's that story? Yeah, I mean, it was really, so I was looking for kind of a change because um, my job, I, I was looking for something like a little bit faster paced, um, where I could really kind of make more of an impact on the organization, because obviously working for um, the National Institutes of Health, it's a huge, huge organization. And um, it's a little bit tougher as, you know, a beginning writer to uh, really make an impact. So um, I was looking for something different. Um, Payload had reached out to my university um, career office. And so I had, I was kind of aware of them. I followed them on Twitter and I was working on um, sending an email to, to Ari and Mo, who are the co-founders. Um, and when Ari actually DM'd me on Twitter, he had noticed in my, in my Twitter bio that I had science writer, science journalist in there. And he was like, Hey, we're, we're looking for writers. Would you want to hop on a phone call and just like talk about payload and what we're doing? And I was like, yeah. So it was, uh, they kind of beat me to the punch, um, reaching out to me first. So I feel like it was a very kind of, and I, from there, we just kind of started talking, had a whole bunch of conversations and, um, 
just kind of snowballed from there. But I, I, wow. I said very okay. you know, startup way of finding payload. Um, but yeah, right. I've been on the base beat since, since joining in November. That's really cool. I'm actually curious. So I believe that I've never met someone who has studied journalism. So I'm curious, like what are the top three things that you learned from that four-year-long program of journalism? Like what do they actually teach and what did you actually pick up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I went into journalism school with really no like high school journalism experience. A lot of people go in writing mm. newspapers. So I kind of was going in blind with like that, you know, whatever essay writing and creative writing experience that I had. Um, so you really start from scratch um, learning to report, learning how to write a good question that'll get a good answer. And I'm sure you have lots of experience with that as a um, podcast host now. But um, there's, there's an art to it um, that I think I my school is really good at instilling in me. Um, AP style is a big one. There's a lot of kind of silly little grammar rules that are specific to journalism and specific to um, a certain style of writing. Right. Um, really, the, the way to organize a journalism story. You know, you want to always have the most important information right at the top so people, because unfortunately the mm. reality is that people don't always finish a journalism piece. Um, I don't know if we have that problem so much in a newsletter since we write so compactly now, but um, there, there's also, you know, an art to organizing a piece of journalism in a way that's going to be interesting and informative um, and useful for a reader at, at a glance, but also in depth. Right, right. I have I have written a lot. Uh, I used to write a lot about products and business strategy. And I think the number one thing that I know is that I do not follow any grammar rules. Like I would start my sentences with and and but, uh, and people would point me out, but I'm like, hey, this is how I talk. And I just want to write as I talk. I don't want to follow any strict rules, but this is cool. And now I think it's time to dive into JWST. So JWST is James Webb Space Telescope. Can you, can you tell more about who James Webb was, like after whom this telescope was named? Yeah, definitely. So James Webb was the NASA administrator during the Apollo era. Um, hmm. So from, I believe, 19... I think 1961 to 1968 or 9. 1968. Okay. So until, I guess, right before the moon landing. So during that whole hmm. era of development and um, planning for, for the first human landing on the moon, um, you know, the run up the, the space race to that point. That was um, James Webb's era. Exactly. Yeah. So he is known for that good time. All right. So now why do we need JWST? What was Hubble lacking in that JWST sort of came in and has sufficed? Is it just high resolution images, like getting a better camera, or is it something more to it? There's a lot that's different actually between JWST and Hubble. So Hubble was kind of intended as a general purpose observatory. Um, it takes images in ultraviolet light, visible light, and a little bit into the infrared. Um, it's it's much closer down to Earth. It orbits in low Earth orbit at about 540 kilometers away from the planet. Um, and JWST is really built for a much more, um, I wouldn't say specialized, but for a more specific purpose, for, for looking deeper into the universe, looking at older galaxies, looking at you know, star formation. Um, and for that reason, JWST is an infrared telescope. Um, it looks from the near infrared into um, to the mid infrared range, which um, Hubble is just, it doesn't have the capability of doing. And the reason for that is because um, JWST is looking much further back in time, um, which is kind of a science fiction way to say it, but um, it's, it's looking further back in time at, at older, older galaxies. Um, and as light travels from very, very old galaxies to here, it gets stretched out and pushed more into the infrared. So you need a more sensitive infrared camera to see those wavelengths of light. Exactly. I think I recently wrote about how 
uh, GWST will help us time travel. So I think this is how I try to explain it. Like, it's like, you know, imagine if your grandfather is standing in front of you and trying to click your click his picture, but the picture turns out to be of him when he was a baby. So that's how GWST is working. Like, there are these galaxies that are 13 billion years away from, uh, from us, and the light sort of, like, you know, uh, came, or light sort of, what's the right word? Light sort of... Uh, emitted from them 13 million years ago and it's reaching us now and we are capturing that light so is it true that the pictures that we are getting are not what these things look like today but what they look like 13 billion years ago right exactly so the oldest um galaxy in some of these images that have just recently come out of GWST, it took 13 billion years for that light to travel from that galaxy crazy so it, it's crazy it's it's so it's wild so you're seeing this these galaxies as they existed 13 billion years ago that doesn't mean, I think that there's a little bit of um, confusion. That doesn't mean that that galaxy is 13 billion light years away. In fact, that galaxy is at this point much, much further away than that. It's been traveling away from us ever since. So it's, uh, I think the galaxy that I'm thinking of is kind of like little red dot. That's um, right. I think it's called glass the, um, internet. What'd you say? I think it's called glass Z13. Yes, yes. Um, so that galaxy is now more than 40 um, billion light years away. From right. Us. Um, because the universe has been expanding and that space in between us and them has been growing that whole time. Right. I've been thinking a lot about this, like this, even the light that emitted is 13, million, 13 billion years ago mm -hmm. or 13 billion years old. Did some composition of light not change in within all these billion of years? Is it the same thing that we are capturing? Uh, so I'm thinking about that. Like, do you think about that? Like, I'm thinking a lot about all these time travel stuff. Like, what if we want to capture... Uh, what if we want to capture how these galaxies look like today? What if these uh, galaxies are coming towards us at a super high speed or whatever something is happening, but we can we don't know because we can only capture how they look like 13 million years ago. So yeah, it's there are some crazy questions to think about over here. There absolutely are. And yeah, it's crazy to think that that light was preserved on that journey, you know, um, 13, billion, 13 billion years to get to us. Um, it's not exactly the same. It's not reaching us in exactly the same way as it left that um that galaxy 13 billion years ago because it has been stretched out, you know, physically stretched mm. out by the expansion of the universe um, over time, which is why it comes right. to us, you know, as, as infrared light, which we, you know, perceive as heat, but which we can, you know, image on such a powerful camera as GWST. Right. That makes sense. Now, I actually want to know what was your journey of covering this GWST thing? When did you first get introduced and what got you to focus only on GWST, sort of extensively cover it? So you can also share about like, you know, what did you, what blew your mind along the way? Uh, as you were researching this? Yeah, definitely. So I, I, I think I became aware of JWST. I think I, I knew beforehand, you know, when I was reporting for Popular Science and kind of just in my general interest in space, that this big, you know, next generation telescope was being built. Um, but I didn't know much about it, about how it actually works, about how this actual process was working, probably until I started reporting for Payload, um, which was last, beginning of last November. Um, hmm. And that was, you know, coincidentally about a month before, two months yeah. before the telescope launched. So it was kind of a big news at this point. Um, and that's kind of when I really started diving into it and learning more about it. Um, yeah, so soon after JWST launch, I got the opportunity to speak with Paul Geithner, who is NASA de NASA's deputy pro uh, project manager for JWST. Um, and he really talked me through the engineering processes, the different instruments on JWST and how they work, um, and this huge, um, you know, 20 plus year development process that went into building this telescope. And um, and sending it to this, you know, little gravitational balancing point in space, a million miles away from us. Um, at the time that I spoke with him, um, the telescope hadn't even reached that point yet. Um, so we really didn't even know, we had, didn't have any images yet, we didn't even know if we were getting images, there were so many things that could have gone wrong on that journey. So I think we were kind of just in the midst of this 
very anxious moment in JWST development. Um, but he was he was very confident when I spoke to him and you know had so much faith in the in the program and in the work of the NASA engineers and the USA and CSA engineers who had worked on the telescope. Um, and so it's really exciting now looking back and seeing everything that they've accomplished. But that's really what um, first you know struck awe in me. I think about the JWST telescope was just hearing from Paul. Um, all the work that went into it and these kind of feats of engineering that had to be accomplished in order to get this telescope up there. Definitely. And how does it feel like talking to these really smart people at NASA? And how did you get in touch with them? Oh, I'm, I'm starstruck every time I talk to one of these, um, these really incredible, brilliant, um, you know, astrophysicists and engineers that are working on these um, projects. It's pretty easy, actually, to get in touch with NASA. They have a really great communications department. Um, okay. Shout out through the NASA communications department, but they're really great about... Um, Kind of getting you in touch with the right people to to speak about these things you know they're very excited and they, they do want to share all the science and all the information that's coming out of the agency definitely and now let's get into the instruments that are on board before we get into the images so that we can understand that okay what sure. is going on what is in jwst so what do we know about the instruments that are on board sure so there are four instruments on board jwst um one is near cam which stands for near infrared camera there's near spec which stands for near infrared spectrograph um, MIRI, which is the mid-infrared instrument, and then the fine guidance sensor slash NIRIS, which stands for uh, uh, Near Infrared Imager and Slitless Spectrograph. Wow, nice. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot, it's a mouthful. Um, but these four instruments all do kind of different things. The NIRCAM takes images in infrared. It's a, it's a reflective slash refractive camera that takes um, infrared imagery. Um, NIRSPEC is a an instrument that can take in light and split it into its component wavelengths to kind of figure out the composition of where that of the, which we'll talk about later when we talk about the images, but it can talk like about the composition of the um, objects that the light is coming from. Um, MIRI is the mid-infrared instrument, which can kind of see deeper into the infrared, further from what we perceive as visible light um, to see kind of the older, um, older galaxies and older light that's coming. Um, and then the fine guidance sensor and, um, and nearest are both positioning tools. So they are what kind of, you know, JWST will lock onto a target so that all of its, instrument can, all of its instruments and mirrors can focus on that target. That's kind of the, the, the guidance tool. I and mean, it also has a role as an imager and a spectrograph. Got it, got it. Yeah, the, the space is so wide. You are thinking about 360, you are 360 degrees, you're thinking about billions of years in terms of the angles, which means there are so many images that you could capture, so many things that you could focus on, but then you are only allowed to focus on one thing because yeah it takes hours how much how long does it take to generate an image on GWST? what is that compared to hubble i'm not sure what it is compared to hubble but it um usually it takes out it takes a, a handful of hours i believe for jwst to take an image um depending on the field of view depending on you know how far away things are um it can vary but you know a handful of hours i believe people get um between four and 50 hours to to look at a particular target on the telescope Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. I just know that somewhere I heard that Hubble takes at least three weeks. So overall, it's like, let's say a 10x improvement in terms of how like faster we can generate these really high quality images. So that's really good. Like we can generate them fast and we can generate really high quality. So that's a really good thing. Now let's get into the images now. So where do you want to start? I think we can start with the boring one, which is WASP 96B. Oh, uh, it's not I... boring. You think that's the boring <laughs> one? I think because it's not an image, it's a graph. <laughs> it's a graph, but it's an exciting graph. Right. So yeah, so WASP-96b was the first exoplanet spectrum that um, JWST took of a, a hot gas giant um, 
in a galaxy, in a solar system besides our own, um, which is very exciting. And really the exciting finding from that image, from that, from that spectrograph reading, um, was the, that they identified liquid water or, um, or um, water vapor in the atmosphere. Water vapor, right. Water vapor in the atmosphere of this planet, um, which has never been done before, first of all. And mm. it's a huge step towards looking for um, biosignatures on exoplanets. It's a, it's a huge step in the search for at least the possibility of life on other planets. Um, that's one of my favorite ones. It's not as pretty as okay. the others, I'll give you that, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that one. Right, right. Was it like, so I was expecting like, you know, there's there's a graph and behind that in the image, they have the WASP-96b sort of uh, animated image or what's the right word? Yeah, graphic image. It's mm -hmm. not the actual image they capture. So I was expecting like they would also capture how WASP-96b looks like, but we just have the graph. But yes, it's super mm -hmm. exciting. Like there is water in one of the exoplanets that we have finally found, which means there could be water on even other planets which are out there. So that's really cool. Absolutely. And now we can talk about the most beautiful one, which is the cosmic cliffs of Carina Nebula. Yes absolutely beautiful um, image that one so what that image is showing is this region of a nebula you know they have zoomed in on this one particular part of a nebula where stars are being born and these really really high energy young stars have carved out these cliffs with radiation um, in this nebula so that's quite kind of you see this like spiky um, silhouette of this mm. giant cloud of gas and dust it looks beautiful. I believe so many people now has Karina Nebula as their wallpapers on uh, Twitter cover photos and phone wallpapers and desktop wallpapers. So it's super cool. Uh, what I think I've also read that all these all these images, they are so high quality, they are so high resolution that every single star, every single component in these high quality images could be now a doctoral thesis for graduate students at MIT or top universities. So it's that cool. Now people are going to really dissect that and study what have we captured in this high resolution images. So that's good for science. That's really good for science. But can you actually help understand like what is nebula and yes, how, how stars are born? Like if you could give a quick a rundown of that. Yeah, I mean, how stars are born is a really complicated question, and it's part of what right. scientists are trying to um, understand through JWST. Um, but what a nebula is, a, neb a nebula is a cloud of gas and dust, um, basically, at, at its core. That's what it is, and it can form around dying stars, um, as we see in the um, the other nebula that was imaged by JWST, the, the Southern Rain Nebula, um, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a minute. Um, but it can be formed by that. It's, it's just kind of this huge conglomeration of gas and dust that's formed. Um, and stars are born often in these kind of like very high energy, you know, um, mass, uh, uh, matter, uh, dense areas, um, that they can kind of like pull all this gravity, kind of pull all this, um, mass together and, and form a star. It's a, it's a mysterious process and it happens, you know, cosmically speaking really, really quickly, um, between 50,000 and a hundred thousand years, which, um, in the scope of the universe is really a, a, the blink of an eye. Um, right. And, and that's part of one of the questions that scientists are really digging into is like, how exactly does star formation happen? Um, what conditions um, are needed for star formation to happen? Right. I'm seeing that, like, you know, with the GWST images, suddenly how stars are formed, what will happen to the sun? These sort of questions are really trending on Google now. Like, people are trying to understand. I personally read that. Okay, wait, I, I heard this way back, maybe five years ago, six years ago, that, okay, one day our sun is going to die. But what is the process? I finally know now. So they talk about that your sun is going to convert into a red giant, and then it's going to emit all the stuff, all the lights. It's going to become a cloud, and then it's going to turn into a white dwarf, stuff like that. So that's super cool. And yeah, with that, let's get into the southern ring nebula so that was again a really beautiful image yeah definitely a very very beautiful image so that is um, an image of like you were saying a star that was at one point 
probably pretty similar to our sun um, at the end of its life. So at the end of its life, yeah, it kind of just starts giving off all of this material that it's accumulated. It just kind of starts spewing it out. Um, and when you look at that image, that really bright star that you're seeing at the center actually isn't the isn't the dying star. That's a star that's kind of nearby the dying star. That's um, part of the reason that all of this gas and dust is being uh, spewed out into this huge ring. It's kind of helping to distribute that material. Um, but what was exciting about these images is that in the Miri image, which looks um, further into the infrared, you're able to see both the dying star and the star that um, is helping, that is kind of partner star that's helping to distribute this material. You can see them really side by side um, because in the near infrared and invisible light, the, the dying star is obscured by dust. Um, that visible light can't pierce through, but infrared light can. Right. That, yeah, definitely. I think that was super cool. Like they got the same image from different cameras so that we could really understand like what's happening in the center. Mm -hmm. uh, now let's talk about Stefan's Quintet. That was again, a really good one. Yeah. And another really beautiful image. Um, one of the first, I think, visual groupings of galaxies ever, ever imaged, I think it was 1877, um, was the first time that Stephen's Quintet was um, really identified. Um, so that cluster of galaxies is, it's, it's, it's what they call a visual grouping. So four of those galaxies are actually pretty close to one another, interacting with each other. Um, the one on the left in that image that looks like a little bit higher def and you can see kind of more of the individual stars and it looks like in a little bit sharper focus is actually much, much closer to us than um, those other four in that image. But those other four in that image are, it's interesting to be able to see them interact with each other um, as they kind of collide and, and spew a material in different directions. Um, it's, it's giving the scientists some insight into what happens when um, these galaxies sort of interact with one another. Right. That I think I think the reason why many people like I showed this to one of my friends, Stefan Squinted, and one of the reasons why he wasn't very really impressed with Stefan Squinted is because these are sort of images that we have somewhere learned how to make in movies. Like these are some of the animated graphics that we have learned how to make in movies, and it has become so common that now when we see them in real life, when we see the actual thing, we are not that impressed. But it's really cool when you start digging into it that okay, what's happening in this image? There's gravity of two galaxies coming together, and that's affecting how they look like and uh, as you mentioned, like, you know, the depth you have to take when you're capturing the image in open, wide, open, dark, you have to figure out that, okay, how would the depth work? How to go through these, how to go through clouds of dust, how to capture things behind these clouds of dust and stuff like that. So that's super cool. And finally, I think the latest image that came out was the Glass Z13. And this image blew my mind, not the image, but what it what was written down in that article. It said basically that, okay, this is a this is image of how the galaxy looked like how this galaxy looked like just 300 million years after the big bang and that was super crazy how how are they able to capture this and that's why i went to, that's when i went in the rabbit hole but yeah what what are your thoughts on this one yeah you know it's really exciting the image itself yeah i agree it's not much to look at it's kind of just like this weird blurry red smudge um but it's it's the it's what that means for science i think that's really exciting um and actually since that um reading a bunch of astronomers have come out and been like no this is the oldest um image that we've ever taken of a galaxy no this is the the oldest um the most far away galaxy that we've ever seen um because that's just what's going to happen over the next couple of years as um, there are more and more observations on jwst these, these discoveries of like you know the the furthest away or the oldest galaxy the oldest light that we've ever measured these are just going to keep coming in that's part of the beauty of this telescope um, glass what's really exciting about this um galaxy is that yes you're looking at it the way that it was 300 million years after the big bang was a time in the history of the universe that um, scientists previously had thought that really large um, gatherings, like really, really bright galaxies 
probably hadn't formed yet. Um, but when we're looking at this at, uh, at glass Z13, um, what you're looking at, it, it's really, really luminous. It's really bright. Um, you're getting a lot of light from this galaxy, which kind of challenges that um, perception that maybe that there weren't large galaxies at this time. I'm thinking about it. Wow, that's that's interesting. Okay, I know the the part where they came out with this thing that, okay, this is the earliest known galaxy. That has been debated a lot because obviously there are so many things out there. Could be even amateur or astronomers. I don't know if they can, but they can also point to a stuff to a galaxy and they can be like, all right, I think this is the oldest galaxy. So that's debatable, but it's cool to see that it's cool to see that we captured something 13 billion years, light years away from us. That's the coolest part over here. Now, I, I also read in one of your articles, so you mentioned that, um, you, I, I'll basically read what you mentioned. So you mentioned that when we first turn near cam on, it's going to basically see 18 images of the same star, one from each mirror segment in the primary mirror. We have got to turn those into one unaberrated image of the star where all the mirrors are working together. So it's interesting. So we are not capturing just, it's not like our phone camera, we're just capturing it. We're capturing different segments or different from different parts, and then we are combining it together. So what do we know more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the way that um, JWST is constructed, it's actually really you know, like a feat of engineering. Um, that these 18 separate mirrors are working together as, as one mirror. Um, and the reason for that is because the JWST mirror is 6.5 meters across, which is way too big to fit in any rocket's payload fairing ever built. It's just too too big. The rocket wouldn't get off the ground if it was like one big solid um, piece of mirror. So they had to figure out a way to, to separate this mirror into these 18 different pieces, these tiles, so they could kind of stack on launch and then unfold and, and, and um, form this kind of one continuous mirror that it is working as now. But when you, when you talk about how it was originally 18 separate images, um, that was before the telescope was tuned up. Um, so it was when it, when it first launched and before, um, the mirrors were angled in such a way that they're now acting as one mirror. Um, but there, there are, I, I believe 138 actuators behind these mirrors that are able to adjust them really, really precisely, um, and kind of angle them all towards the secondary mirror, which is, um, you know, several meters away from the primary mirror. And so that when it's reflecting back into the telescope, um, they're all working as one. So it, it really is, at this point now, it is producing one image by angling these mirrors in a way that they, they stack on top of each other. The images stack on top of each other. Right. That entire unfolding, like, it's just seeing that animation, it's it's cool, but actually sending something like this in the space that it does everything on its own, unfolds and starts operating on its own, that is crazy. Like, thinking about there would be so many points of failure. I actually read, so there are 344 single points of failure for this mission, which yeah. means any of these one thing could go wrong and $10 billion, 20 years are down the drain. That's crazy. Do we know more about, like, these single point of failures? Yeah, so um, we have to think about what these people were actually doing. It's It's wild to think about the actual engineering that went into this. You're putting this $10 billion folded up little piece of equipment, little, it's huge, um, school bus sized, folding it up, putting it on top of a rocket, you know, setting that rocket, you know, launching that rocket, so, so much energy goes into that, putting that into space, sending it a million miles away from us where we're never going to be able to reach it again, <laughs> unlike Hubble, which um, right. didn't work upon launch and they had to go and service it and get it to work. Um, AWST had to work the first time. Um, there was there was no alternative. If any one of those single points of failure actually occurred, um, it, it could have been disastrous for this for this ten billion dollar telescope that we've spent twenty years building. Um, so you have to imagine it was you know terrifying for these engineers watching this thing launch and then unfold. Um, you know, as the sun shield was unfolding, which is this kind of tennis court sized sheet um, that keeps the heat off of the instruments. Um, as that was unfolding, 
I think even as recently as 2018, um, ground tests of that sun shield unfolding were snagging, they were ripping the shields, they, were, they weren't quite working, um, even as recently as a few years ago. Um, so it's really, I mean, you don't want to say it's a miracle because it really is the work of these really brilliant right. engineers to solve these problems and, and to actually like design this thing in a way that it was bound to work. Um, and it, it's really a testament to their to their building was a miracle because it really is a testament to all the, the work and ingenuity that these NASA engineers put into solving all these problems and making sure that this telescope was bound to work. Um, and, and it's really incredible what they've accomplished. But yeah, there was a lot that that could have gone wrong, but enough testing and enough ingenuity was put into these components that um, they were at least reasonably sure that that it was going to work. Um, there's always right. something that that could go wrong, but um, you had to be pretty confident to put that $10 billion piece of equipment on, on top of a rocket and, and let it go. Um, yeah, but it, it's, it's, really, it's really incredible. And it, the launch went absolutely flawlessly. The unfolding, the launch, everything about this mission went, went perfectly, which is, really exciting to be able to say now. Definitely. And what do we know about the fact that what do we decide to point our camera on? I believe that I believe there are three agencies working together. There is NASA, there is the Canadian Space Agency, and there is the ESA European Space Agency. So how have we thought about uh, who gets how much amount of time? How are we allocating the observation time? How are we deciding that, okay, if it takes X amount of hours to generate images, and if we only have uh, Y amount of hours, how do we Focus, how do we make sure we focus on the most impactful images sort of that would be most helpful to us? Yeah, definitely. So um, going back to the, I guess, the observation time question we'll talk about first, um, that really was decided a long time ago during the development of the telescope um, when they were kind of figuring out what instruments were going to go on the telescope, kind of making their their concessions to one another about what science can be done, what, what, what do we need, what do we not need, what's going to be too heavy, what's going what's to actually work on this craft, who's going to build what? Um, was a huge consideration in determining who was going to get what observation time. So um, I don't know exactly the breakdown of um, observation time, but I know that ESA gets at, you know at least fifteen percent of observation time on the telescope, um, and that's because they provided launch services to um, JWST through the Ariane rocket, and hmm. it was at the time of you know this imagining this um, craft was really one of the only rockets that had the track record and the reliability to launch such a huge project, um, and they also um, built some of the instruments. And so that contribution got them at least 15% of observation time on the telescope. Um, I'm sure it's, you know, a similar process for figuring out NASA and um, CSA's time on the telescope. Um, as for the actual projects that um, the targets that we're looking at with JWST, those are, um, you know, astronomers will submit proposals, you know, they want to work on this project on JWST, they want this much observation time to look at this thing um, at this time. And um, there are committees set up to kind of review those proposals and make those decisions about who's going to get observation time. Um, I know that there were there were 13 projects initially. Um, I forget the name of the program, but it was, you know, the 13 first projects that JWST was going to carry out. Um, and those were decided before um, the telescope launch, what these kind of initial targets were going to be. And they, they you know, they run the gamut in terms of um, why we're doing them, what they're looking at, um, what they're trying to accomplish with science. I think they wanted kind of a variety to begin with. And then after that, um, it'll be a more standard um, review procedure for proposals. Right, makes sense. So I remember when I was working at a company, we had to write business proposals for every new thing that we had to do. Similarly, for all these, for voting a particular 
image that you want to capture, you have to write a long business proposal. Uh, the astronomers have to write it that, okay, this is the reason why we want to point over here because it's going to help us study X, Y, and Z. But it's really cool. I believe that, you know what they should do? Right now we are seeing the rise of crypto and DAOs. They should have, they should set up a DAO for, let's say, at least once in a quarter, once in two months. Uh, the, the normal public comes around in a DAO sort of, in a JWST DAO, and they all start voting that, okay, what should the JWST point the camera towards? So so that the entire, the normal people, the, yeah, the, the common public can decide that, okay, at least we get one slot where we can just randomly vote and be like, all right, let's point over here and see what's, what's happening. It was over there. Yeah, you know what? I think that might be actually a pretty good way to get people interested. People are really interested in these first images came out, but um, I don't know. I wonder if NASA is looking for a way to kind of sustain that engagement to make sure that people stay invested in what right. he is doing because you know they should there's a, a lot i, I think yeah i think that's definitely true because i was just looking at google trends and i'm seeing there is some trends moving towards let's say people searching a lot about now black holes about like all these words are so cool right like when you say cosmic cliffs that's that's the word is so cool like galactic awesome. stuff <laughs> yeah exactly right so people want to be people want to be talking about cool stuff and this is the mm -hmm. cool stuff so that's the that's the best thing so i think one more thing so you know what I try to do whenever I learn about something cool, especially in the crazy world that we are living in, where we're talking about crypto and space and stuff like that, I try to explain this to people who are totally out of touch, who are not at all interested in these sort of things, who are living the normal life. And I would explain them that, okay, what just happened? And that, there was a person who explained what JWST is, the significance of JWST. And they were like, do we really need it? Do we really need a high resolution image of random galaxies out there? What's it going to do to us? Like we spent $10 billion, 20 years on it. Like, do we really need it? And I, in, in, at the end of your article, you wrote something similar where you mentioned that the significance of NASA's tagline, where they say that, okay, we'll leave it to the readers to decide whether it was worth it. Yeah. How are you thinking about this? How do you answer this question when someone says that, why do we need this? Do we really need uh, to spend $10 billion on a telescope? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a huge investment for something that really has kind of an existential purpose. Um, I really believe that it's important for us to do this work, trying to figure out the universe and our place in it. Um, I think it's a really, I think it's important to who we are as a human race. Um, I think this, this need to know more, to discover, to, to understand the world that we live in um, is so core to the human experience. Um, and it's hard to put a price tag on that. Um, even a $10 billion price tag, I mean, how do you line that up with the, the value for humanity? The fact that the, the science that we gain from JWST is going to last forever and shape our view of the universe forever, um, you know, until the next, until the next giant telescope comes along that, that can see further and can see better and can tell us even more. Um, but, you know, no matter what, this, this telescope is going to to change our perception of the universe. And I think, I, I, I personally think that that's something you can't put a price tag on. I think it's important for us to do these, to do these things and to, to you know, capture you know, our collective imagination um, to tell us, because we, we want to know more. As a species, we want to know more. Um, we're a storytelling species. We're trying to, we're always trying to figure things out. Um, and I think that's kind of what JWST stands to do. Definitely, definitely. I believe like, you know, uh, I was reading an, a post by someone yesterday and he mentioned that like he works in cybersecurity and he basically mentioned that like, you know, I don't go out to founders and be like, hey, uh, we will make your make your company, make your product more secure. He talks about specific 
things that have failed in their company. So he talks about that, okay, there have been five breaches in your company that could affect your users. Your users can lose trust and you can lose hundred millions of dollars in the next two years. So similarly, I believe like, you know, people really attach to something when they realize that, okay, there is some loss to them. So I, how I try to frame it is that, okay, there might be a meteor coming towards us. There might be some chemical explosion in its, let's say 50% progress and it's about to go hundred percent. And we have no idea until unless we point towards it and understand it. So based on that, we can plan something out that, okay, 20 years, there's going to be explosion. What are you going to do? you're going to go to mars so stuff like that like you know you need to uh, tell people that okay there is some loss uh, that's going to happen to them personally only then they will pay attention to it or they will be like oh wait you're talking about who we are why do we exist and stuff like that we already have meditation spirituality for that we know it's all good but we're still not doing it so i think i think like you know many people don't really care about it they would but they will care if they find that oh wait okay so there is this imminent risk that a meteor will hit and we are going to go out uh so it's a different way of phrasing the same thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, something lost, something gained. I happen to think that what we gain is a lot greater than what we may have lost. Definitely, definitely. Now, talking about Meteor, I believe that you guys also covered this where GWSG had a micro meteoroid impact. Mm-hmm. Do you want to yeah. talk about that? Like we we are, I believe I have learned a lot about orbital debris from you guys. I while researching for Ryan's podcast, I was learning more about orbital debris, and it's crazy to think about it. There could be a chain reaction. There we are just launching so much stuff out there that even if one thing goes wrong, uh, there could be a chain reaction because everything is just around there, and it could totally uh, make space inaccessible for us. So it's crazy. But yeah, let's talk about this. So our GWST was impacted by a meteor. Yeah, by a micrometeoroid. So um, when we're talking about orbital debris, it's all, I mean, this is this is still debris in, um, in space, but these are kind of naturally occurring, like little pieces of rock and dust floating around in space. Um, that stuff is just out there. We're not really talking about Earth orbit with, or, or at least not where we put satellites, um, in low Earth orbit, medium geostationary orbits, because um, JWST is much, much further than that. JWST is about four times as far as the moon um, from Earth. So it's, it's way, way further out there. Um, but there are these still kind of like natural pieces of debris um, out there floating in space. And a lot of these were were planned for, um, you know, NASA knows that there's gunk out, out floating in space that you kind of have to just be resilient enough to withstand. Um, and actually there have been a lot of micrometeoroid um, impacts on JWST so far. I don't know um, how many exactly, but I know that in between the one that we wrote about that was a little bit larger um, and the time that NASA reported that, there were four more, um, you know, that hit the mirrors. Um, this, so, so NASA did before they launched JWST conducted some tests, um, testing like what a micrometeoroid would do to the mirrors, um, how you would come back from that, how you can use these actuators behind the mirrors to kind of, um, adjust and make up for some of the damage done. Um, this micrometeoroid that hit a few months ago, um, was larger than what they were able to test for down on earth, which was why it was kind of significant. It happened really quickly after launch, um, and it did some damage to a mirror. A lot of that damage was able to they were able to make up for by by adjusting the mirror a little bit, um, and the telescope is still performing beyond expectations. It's still performing better. It's still creating better images than um, it was planned to create, which I think is wild. Um, but yeah, there were a lot I think of kind of I don't want to say fear mongering, but uh, some some dramatic headlines um, that came out after that impact saying like this $10 billion space, uh, telescope just got hit by a meteor. And like, that's not really, I don't, I don't think that that's, that's a little bit, uh, disingenuous, I think, to what actually happened, which I think it makes a lot of, sense. Bit of a problem, but not something that we can't come back from that NASA hadn't planned for, you know? 
definitely it makes a lot of sense to name it micro meteoroid and not <laughs> meteor uh <laughs> that makes it easier to understand that okay was well, just a small uh, maybe speck that just hit the mirror and mm-hmm. not entire thing just took that out right yeah i made a little dent um it it did impact the mirror like i'm not saying it didn't impact it definitely did impact the mirror um some of that damage was able to they could account for it um but also the telescope is just it's going to happen you know over the course of time um that stuff is out there and you can't steer your giant telescope through it all it's it's just kind of an unfortunate fact that it's, it is going to degrade the mirrors over time. Um, the good thing is that the telescope's really really good. Some of that damage can be accounted for. Um, yeah, and it, it's not right. And what do we know about this entire aspect that JWST is not revolving around Earth? It's just out there, outside the orbit. It's going to stay outside the orbit. And mm-hmm. I also read about like there's a reason. There's another reason behind. There are two reasons behind. It. Number one, that gives us more observation time. Number two, it's going to protect the JWST from the sun. So what do yeah. we know about this? Can we talk about that? The James Webb Space Telescope is um, located at a place called the Grand Point 2, which is this kind of magical spot where the gravitational forces of the Earth and the Sun balance out, which allow it to stay there without expending too much energy, trying to maintain its orbit and stay in place. It expends much less energy than it would have to um, expend if it were really anywhere else. Um, so it's orbiting this point, which is on the other side of the Earth from the Sun, so that it can, it's always, as the Earth orbits the Sun, JWST is going with it, but on the it's kind of staying in its like relative position, keeping the Earth in line with the Sun, um, which means as if uh, JWST is facing outwards from the Earth, it's not facing the Earth. Um, the Sun Shield is keeping the instruments, which need to stay really, really cold. Um, the Sun Shield always stays in between the telescope and the Sun and the Earth. Um, so all of that is being blocked out by the Sun Shield. Right, that's really cool. I I read that like we because we are capturing infrared images, infrared infrared images like are basically all about the heat, all about the temperature, and even a little bit of temperature on JWST, even a little bit of heat generated on JWST could affect how images are created. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, they are keeping JWST at a negative two twenty degrees Celsius. I believe that's the temperature they're keeping it, like super cold, like almost like two seventy three is the point where things stop moving. Two seventy three, which is I believe uh, zero Kelvin, mm-hmm. and we are keeping it at negative 220. And now the sun shield, I read a lot about sun shields. The sun shield is basically five layers and it's a new material, totally new material created just for this mission. And yeah, basically the first the first uh, shield gets super hot by the time it reaches number five, Sun, the sunlight is totally blocked. And that's also the reason why we want to keep it away from the sun. So this is super cool. So you also mentioned that you guys are launching a science news that is soon. What is that about? Yeah. Um, so, Caleb, right now the newsletter that we put out every day is, like I said, about business and policy of space. But um, I think that there's um, really space for us to talk more about the science that impacts business and policy in space. You know, it's all really intertwined. And so I kind of um, wanted an outlet to talk more about that part of everything. Um, so we're starting a science newsletter very soon. I'm going to be writing it. Um, it's still going to be under the payload umbrella. Um, and we're going to be talking about all of the science news that impacts the space industry. So it's still going to be, you know, primarily for people within the space industry. Um, although I think it'll have a little bit more of a general interest bent to it, um, just because I think mm. that science, the, the science parts of um, space, do kind of capture the general interest a little bit more than kind of the nitty gritty business um, space news. As much as I love writing about it. Um, so yeah, we're launching that probably in the next couple of months. So keep an eye out for that. That's pretty cool. So is it going to not cover anything at space at all about space? Is it just going to be like general science? 
Oh no, it is going to be. It's going to be space science. So it's going to be. Um, oh, space about, science. Okay. Yeah, space science. Um, maybe I should be more clear about that in my pitch. But yes, it is. Um, it's it's covering space science. So we're going to be talking about different, um, you know, components that go into space and how they work. It's going to be talking about NASA experiments that are happening, some of the you know technological advancements that um, could impact the space industry, could change the space industry, um, and kind of give me a space to just kind of talk to scientists about kind of the the great. Um, advancements that we're making and the discoveries that we're making, especially now that um, JWST is up there. I think there's going to be um, kind of a flurry of astronomy news in the next little while, um, which is really exciting. I think kind of preparing for that through this. That makes that makes a lot of sense. So the main payload newsletter will be focused on the business and the policy, and you the space science will be focused more about teaching people about okay, what what are we looking at? Like, what is this yeah. thing going on? Right. Why, what does it all mean? Why does this matter? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Who are we? Why do we exist? Okay, yes. that's cool. All those big questions. <laughs> I'll have answers for you in a couple of weeks. I believe you should start the first one with what is the meaning of life. <laughs> meaning of life. Yeah, just get that you know off the table right as we start. Exactly, exactly. Perfect. And now, other than JWST, what are other things that you are covering that you are really excited about? Oh, I think you mentioned one of the things that I'm really um, excited about the advancements that we're making, which is orbital debris. Um, hmm. I spent a lot of time really diving into the issue of orbital debris, um, the debris landscape, and kind of the companies that are coming up with solutions um, and trying to figure out what to do about it. Um, so there are a lot of, you know, active debris removal companies that are um, figuring out ways to actually, you know, get a space spacecraft to go up into space and grab something that's not supposed to be there and take it um, you know, back down out of orbit. Um, there's companies who are working on space situational awareness and making sure that um, satellite operators can navigate around um, debris and you know, whatever's in their way without crashing into other things. Um, because yeah, like you said, there, um, there's a real risk that if there are collisions in orbit, um, that could create clouds of debris that really threaten everything else, especially as you know, um, low Earth orbit gets denser and denser with the launch of these mega constellations that are planned in the next couple of years. Um, and as we increase the human presence in low Earth orbit, you know, in 10 years, there could be a handful more um, commercial space stations in low Earth orbit. And those are going to be actual human beings that we need to protect from debris. So it's it's really an existential problem for the space industry. Um, but there are a lot of, you know, solutions and, and create. there's a lot of creativity in that area that I'm really excited about. Right. It's really cool. We'll be operating in 3D. So similar to air traffic control, we will need space traffic control. Yeah, exactly. We do. We make we sure you can easily navigate. That. Yeah. No, there's nothing that exists right now that is kind of the, um, you know, all-encompassing central place where people can go to to figure out who's going where and when that's happening. We just don't have the we don't have the data. We don't have the information or the or the communication capabilities. So um, that's a problem that a lot of you know really creative, really um, bright people are working on. And it's it's exciting to see where that goes. To watch where where that's going. Definitely. And while researching for this podcast, I came across Lex Friedman's latest one where he was talking to Lord Martin Rees. Uh, I do not remember what his exact uh, profession occupation is, but he's he definitely has accomplished a lot in space. And he was basically talking about AI. And you know how we talk about like AI is going to automate all jobs, take away all the jobs. The best thing that AI would help us do is explore the universe because there are so many things, so many, much deep stuff going on. There's so much pattern recognition that could take place over here that that's where AI will be implemented. It could have the most impact because us as humans cannot pinpoint every single star and start doing research on top of it. Uh, but AI is going to be really helpful over there. And I believe that was a really interesting insight because I, because yeah, this is what, this is what's going on, right? Like even it's, if you think about this micro meteoroid impact that GWC sustained, I believe there's definitely one person whose literal job is to track the motion on JWST and 
at every point of time what other impacts that it could have. Like his literally job is to do this, uh, what's the right word, safety control for JWST. So if AI can totally replace that, AI can really help over there. So I think I was really excited listening to that part. Yeah, that's really exciting. Um, it's interesting to see where that could go. I don't know too much about it, how AI is being used in, in astronomy um, or to, you know, or to protect spacecraft. It's already up there. I, I, I'd be excited to, I'd be interested to learn more about it. Definitely. Now, I think the last thing I want to end this with is when you're reading, you are in the space journalism industry. You are basically reading all about space 24-7, I'm guessing. Uh, do you not feel uh, like I still remember when I first was I came across that article of this glass Z13 galaxy. I was reading the article. I came across that and I was literally sitting for the next 15 minutes and I was just trying to process what I had just read. So and it makes me feel like I'm so small and like, you know, things like the worries I have, the things I have don't even matter and stuff like that. We're talking about things that are way far around it and what happened over there. How does it make you feel like you're constantly in this industry, you're constantly reading about things totally yeah. outside and then you think about, oh, my my subway didn't have enough sauce or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It definitely puts things in perspective. I think a lot of the time I kind of spend the day to day um, talking about the the nitty gritty of, of the space industry, really talking about um, the numbers and the hardware that's being built and, you know, rocket launches and kind of the stuff that really does happen closer to Earth, you know, as big as the space industry is. Um, and I think it's really actually really refreshing for me to kind of be able to, you know, when, when something incredible like this, like these discoveries, like these new images come out, when something really amazing happens and, and groundbreaking happens, to kind of take that step back and be like, we're, you know, we're doing this for a reason. Like this actually, this, this really, really matters. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's every day, even when I am focused on the nitty gritty um, of the space industry, there's so many incredible, you know, science fiction projects happening out in the world um, that I don't know if I would know anything about if I wasn't reporting on the space industry. It's really, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to talk to these people and to learn what they're doing um, and to, to, always, to always be learning more and striving for, um, for further. Definitely, definitely. I think this also reminds me about that one thing I read way back where this one lady, she wrote a letter to the head of NASA that why are you spending billions of dollars on all this stuff when we have hunger and poverty on Earth? Uh, and I believe he replied that, hey, all these billions of dollars, we are not throwing them out, out of space. We are spending them on Earth. They are running the economy. They are spent to pay for all these equipments, for innovation, to pay the salaries, uh, to pay all the manufacturer, all the, all the partners. And that is the thing. It's running the economy. And I think there's another interesting aspect that there are, if it's also giving the smartest people on our Earth the hardest job to solve because otherwise what happens is that people the smartest people go and solve the problem of getting people to click on ads <laughs> that's also a very interesting article that came yeah. out i don't remember the founder who wrote that but his article is basically called the smartest people on the smartest people we know are working to get us click on ads something like that i might i'm phrasing that wrong but how he phrased was super cool so it's very interesting like you know we want to give these smartest people the hardest problem to solve otherwise they're gonna focus over here so it's very interesting when you put this all into perspective that yes it doesn't mean that we are just throwing out these 10 billion dollars out of the earth it's being spent over here yeah right exactly i mean the actual telescope itself is leaving but all those you know hundreds of thousands of people who contributed to it they're still here you know they're still living and working here and and, and striving to build more great things. Exactly. All right, perfect. Rachel, this was really good. Uh, always love talking about space. We do this like, you know, once in 10 episodes, something like that. And it's always super cool. Where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at Rachel Zisk. Um, you can also find me on um, 
on payload. You can go to payloadspace.com and um, find me there. Um, you can also send me an email. I'm rachel at payloadspace.com. And I would love to hear from anybody who wants to chat. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. This was yeah, good. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rajan. It's been great.